All right, let's try again. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. We, are, we get to continue going through the book of Acts together today. So go ahead and get your Bibles open if you're following along. And I just, while you're finding your places there, I just want to make a note. If anyone needs or wants a Bible, um, please say something to someone around you. Like we can make sure, whether it's on an app on your phone, there are lots of free apps and websites. We have copies we can give out. Um, if you, or if you know someone who needs a Bible, please, uh, let's not let availability ever be an excuse for anyone to not read the Bible. There's plenty of other excuses in our busy schedules to not read the Bible, but availability is not one of them for anybody here. So as we pick up in Acts chapter 4 today, we're going to be kind of in the middle of Acts chapter 4, but I want to first do just a quick recap as a reminder of where we are. We've been, this is our eighth sermon in Acts, so we've been in this book for a couple months now. So where, when, who, and what are we reading about? Anyone up for a, a quick quiz as to, first of all, where? Where in the world is this story taking place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Thank you. Exactly. So far, the entire story is, has taken place in Jerusalem. And only in a couple of different locations, really. Chapter 1 starts off in that enclosed upper room area of where the disciples were staying in Jerusalem, though. And chapter 2 takes place during the Pentecost celebration. The exact location is a little more ambiguous, but it's all still in Jerusalem. And we're told that they've been spending a lot of time in the temple, specifically. And chapter 3 brought us to a story that takes place in the temple. And the disciples aren't living in the temple 24-7. They're living and meeting in their homes as well. But they're also continuing to spend more and more time gathered together in the temple so that they can preach and teach the crowds. The viewpoint of the narrative is pretty much centered on the temple. It's kind of like we're in the temple and we're seeing people come and go. The, te- the narrative will fo- follows a couple different stories, but it's all around the temple and then by extension Jerusalem. We're, all, we're still very much in Jerusalem. And the central figures are sort of dug in here at base camp until chapter 8 where they're going to be forced to scatter. So we're still in Jerusalem. Where uh, when? When in the world is this taking place? Anyone? Zero AD. Zero AD. Well, first century AD, anyway. Yeah, zero would be Christ's birth, or you can debate the exact numbers of when it was, but the first century after Christ, specifically AD 30 or 60, if Jesus was 30 when he uh, began his ministry, and then this was, would have been written in the next 30 years after that. So point being, these are the really early years, essentially the whole book of Acts in perspective. It's like the first half of the first century of what we now refer to as the common era, marked by the advent of Christ. It's the story of the first generation of Christians, the first to follow Jesus Christ, himself being the firstborn of a new humanity. And so far, up until, you know, in chapter 4, we're still in the first few weeks, let alone the first full year, or the full, let alone the first century of the church's existence. Who? And we have, uh, I'm not going to quiz you on this, because we have several different uh, groups of characters in this story so far. First of all, you have the apostles, and specifically Peter and John is wh- where it really hones in on, who it hones in on. They're devout Jewish Christians, and the story kind of includes them, and by extension, their students and the other apostles and their students. They're spreading the good news of the Messiah 
to the Jews first, beginning at the cultural and religious epicenter of Judaism in the temple. And joining them are these crowds of new Christian Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. And in general, this, the surrounding population is divided into those who gladly accept the gospel and those who dare not go near it. And that division is going to be maybe all the more clear in, as we continue reading today. But I just want to pause there and, and reflect on that just for a moment because you have this amazing thing happening and there are these people who either dare not even go near it and join them, or those who do decide to commit and and jump in and go near them. And to me, there are many reasons to be afraid of joining God. Some some of them even legitimate. Sometimes God is scary. (laughs) But not joining God is a lot scarier to me. And not following God is a lot scarier than going against him, or is scarier than going with him. Luke 11, 23 I don't have that up on the screen, but Luke eleven twenty three is where Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And I think sometimes we're tempted to view ignoring or refusing to be a part of the community of God as kind of the safer or easier option. But in reality, it's like we're in the ocean and we're just closing our eyes and sinking to the bottom of the ocean rather than reaching out and grasping and holding on to the lifeline that's being offered right in front of us. That's how it seems like when people are choosing to go away from God instead of follow and join him. All right, so who else, who else do we have on the stage? Sorry, I got ahead of myself a little bit. The Jewish, the Jewish leaders are the, the last um, kind of category. In addition to those two main categories, you have this sort of upper echelon of elite, this, this higher class of temple goer. You know, of all the people in the temple, these were like the, the highest and um, most powerful. The civil and religious leaders who are, have be, they've become very unhappy with the disruption that this Christ movement has caused. They aren't really afraid of, of missing out as much as they're afraid of being subverted or uh, undermined. I think if, if that's ever our, our fear, if our fear is of our own plans being subverted or our own authorities and powers being undermined, then that's probably a good reality check to realign ourselves a bit with God because God cannot be undermined or subverted. And therefore, we have nothing to fear if we are working alongside God in accordance to his will, united by his spirit as brothers and sisters. On the other hand, if we oppose what God is doing, we will miss out on the incredible joy and satisfaction to be found in it. And ultimately, it will end in greater pain and frustration. We can expect to take great personal offense to whatever God is doing when we're choosing to go entirely in a different direction. Or if we've become just so proud and self-affirmed in our established dogmas or traditions and ways of thinking or doing things that we've left no room for anything more but annoyance or irritation when God introduces something new to us or wants us just to teach us a new way of understanding something. All right, so that's the the where, when, and who, what has happened so far. Let's recap that quickly. First, we saw Jesus ascend to the sky. Jesus is gone. Left the apostles to wait for his spirit in Jerusalem. 
They replace Judas while waiting and then receive the Holy Spirit during Pentecost, which is a major Jewish holiday. And this is a loud, it's bright, it's a tension-drawing event that was witnessed by many, and it caused the church to expand rapidly by the thousands. And in the wake of that, Peter and John have been preaching and teaching and healing, just like Jesus did, and telling people relentlessly about Jesus. The people in charge have gotten really annoyed with them, arrested them, put them on trial, and that's kind of where we left off last week. We've heard from Peter multiple times. His message has been pretty clear and consistent, although it varies based on the context and the people he's talking to. It's always focused on Jesus. We saw that last week in Peter's message to the Sanhedrin, and Mike explored that concept of being focused on Jesus, and more specifically, the name of Jesus and what that really means. <laughs> the name of Yeshua, as they would have known him. Everything they did, at least everything of significance that was recorded, they were human, but everything they did in the context of the church as a whole was to the glory of the Father in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, through the Holy Spirit who unified and empowered them. All of this action, all of this talking and doing of stuff, it's never about anyone's individual reputation, except maybe to establish themselves as a credible witness. A credible um, witness to the testimony of the one reputation of the one person who really matters, that of Christ. And it was evident to the leadership, just by listening to the apostles speak, that they knew what they were talking about. They, they knew who they were talking about. In Acts 4.13, we read last week, it says, they, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What a cool thing to be recognized for. In other words, there was no other explanation for their wisdom and articulate handling of Scripture other than they had spent so much time learning informally, separately from the established institutions, but directly from Jesus, the master teacher himself. And on top of that, there was this man who was healed very publicly and visibly and was still walking around for anyone to see. We were told he stayed near the apostles as much as he could while he could. Now, he may not have been thrown in jail with them, but he sure wasn't being afraid of being associated with them. In fact, we're told that it's seeing him standing there. In the next verse here, I'm going to read in a moment. In verse 14, you know, remember, nobody had ever seen this guy standing before. And so suddenly they're seeing him literally standing with them. And finally, that's what silences the Sanhedrin. Verse 14 says, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, They had nothing to say in reply. Now let's continue reading. But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent. To all who live in Jerusalem, we cannot deny it. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. How backwards is that? This miraculous sign has happened. Let's make sure it doesn't spread. Healing! Let's not let any more of that happen. When they had summoned them, verse 18, 
they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whatever is right in the sight of God, to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had occurred. I love that. Verse 20 is a great standout verse that Mike called out last week, too. They tell the authorities, with all due respect, essentially, they're not going to stand in the way of what God is doing. They just can't physically even possibly stop talking about what God is doing, about how amazing it is, and how much they love Jesus. And you know what? I I guess I can kind of see how that would get annoying after a while. Especially in this context, and how they're really, you know, condemning them for what they did to Jesus. But it's, it's such a great perspective to have. And I do think we should do our best in general not to be annoying if we can help it. But I, I think it's, I, I would rather be worried about talking about God too much than worried about not talking about him enough. And now I say that, I should probably just not worry at all, but that's easier said than done. I'm working on it. But we never have to worry about what will happen when we share what God has done. What we have seen and heard, as long as it's truly out of love and a desire to share the unstoppable message of the gospel, there is no shame in that. There is no fear or worry in simply sharing what God has done, regardless of the consequences. But we should try to be loving and not too annoying about it. <laughs> all right, so now that's all kind of review. With that under our belt, let's continue forward into... In, into the rest of chapter 4, picking up with verse 23. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God. With confidence. Is any of this starting to sound familiar? <laughs> it's a bit of a pattern taking place. After Peter and John return, they tell everyone what happened. The immediate response is for everyone to pray together. Actually, they quote scripture first and then pray together. Unified, not only in, in their prayer, but in their, their mindset, their desires, and their mission. They recognize that in the face of these oppositions and threats, 
the best thing they can do is to lean into their dependence on God, His strength, recognizing Him as the one true master, creator of the universe, they refer to Him. They pray for Jesus' work of healing to continue, for His name to be exalted, for His sake. All of this being accomplished then, as we see, through the Word of God and through the power of the Spirit of God in them to speak the Word of God. They begin, again, in verse 24, they begin by quoting from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. This passage can be applied to many different situations in Israel throughout history, but they're recognizing this is also applying in their situation. They're acknowledging and bringing before God this opposition that they now face, recognizing their own Jewish leaders are acting in parallel with any of their Gentile oppressors from whether Rome or from the past. In that way, they become their own worst enemy in a way, a story which we get to see miraculously reversed in the story of Saul in a few chapters later on. The Jewish Christian's worst enemy becomes one of their greatest champions, but we're getting too far ahead of ourselves. So let's continue on in, in chapter 4, verse 32. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own. But for them, everything was common. And with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, it's a pretty cool nickname, and who owned a field, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so we're getting some more specific details and names, but in general, it's still it's very similar to another summary that we were given back in chapter 2. It says they were continually devoted um, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Um, fear came upon every soul, wonders and signs. All who believed together were together and had all things in common. They were selling their property and possessions. So this is just a reiteration of this, this pattern that was already um, set up. The idea being that they were consolidating and, and redistributing their assets to make sure that everyone was cared for, make, making sure no one was going hungry. And as a result... You know, this would have resulted in some of the existing major class uh, disparity or wealth disparity that existed within, you know, between the wealthy and the poor would have really kind of gone away. Although they would have still known each other and who each other were, they were choosing to leave behind those things as, as irrelevant. And we, we, we can read about this, and it's important to recognize that this particular description of them in this context is descriptive and not prescriptive. This isn't, this isn't a prescription for how every church should operate ever since. This was how they were operating then. And history shows us that even though it sounds like it's pretty, it sounds nice. It's a class-free society of people, 
They're all working together for the benefit of the whole. And in their case, it's to achieve humanity's purpose of glorifying God and partaking in all the abundance of life together for the purpose of glorifying and following Jesus. I mean, that sounds pretty good. But we know, just looking at history, you can't force people into that way of life. That doesn't work. Even less so if Christ is not at the center of the focus and motives. So trying to apply this sort of system to you know, larger government scales typically does not work. But it's still, it's a still a, an understandably good ideal to strive for. I can, you can understand why people see this as an ideal. Within the church, at least, we certainly ought to have attitudes of generosity and even of collective stewardship in the sense that recognizing nothing is really ours but placed under our care. And each of us does have an individual responsibility for what's, what we've been given, what's been placed in front of us. But the weight of that responsibility is only fully realized and fulfilled when in community with each other. Very importantly, all of this that's happening in the early church here, this liquidation and redistribution of assets, it's all voluntary. And it's serving to meet real needs. It's responding to the needs that are in the church at the time, to enable everything that's happening to continue without anyone being left out. This particular season of the church history in this infant stage is pretty unique. But this context is also important in framing the next part of the story, which picks up in the beginning of, of chapter 5. And chapter 4 ends with the story of Joseph, or Barnabas, this son of encouragement. He sets a great example by selling his field and donating everything that he got for it to the church. And it seems that perhaps this was such a noticeable example that others took notice or, or wanted to have a similar reputation, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If their motives were also the same, oh, I also have a field. I didn't even think I, I'm not using it. I can sell it and give, it, give the money to the church. But that's not really quite the case, as we see with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's keep reading here into chapter 5. But, <laughs> and it's a clue that we're going to have a contrasting example but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, no one made you sell it. After it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The implication being here that Ananias had specifically said, this is everything. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up and after carrying him out, buried him. Now there was an interval about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now what? Ananias has been gone a long time. What, what's going on? And Peter responded to her, Tell me, he's giving her a chance to tell the truth, tell me, whether you were paid this much for the land. She said, Yes, that much. That's everything. 
Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together with your husband to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who just buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Again, no one was demanding that they sell their land and give it to the church. Their sin was not in selling the land, nor even in keeping some of the proceeds for themselves. Their sin was in their their pretense, their deception and it's revealed really through the story that what they really wanted more than to help the church was to be highly regarded by the church. And they were willing to lie and deceive in order to achieve those desires. Doing what we think is a good thing for the wrong reasons may seem harmless at the time or on the surface, but it's a symptom of corruption the twisted disease of deception that was, has been fed to us from the beginning by the prince of lies, which is why Peter even references Satan. Whether it's whether going back to the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, the first of humanity, eating that forbidden fruit. There are other examples, not very common. This isn't common for God to exercise such swift and uh, um, intense judgment. But when he does, it's usually with critical people at critical points throughout the history of Israel and the church. So Adam and Eve, Saul was another one that that comes to mind. Israel's first human king. He was, God told him to go and wipe out the city and he didn't. He conquered them but saved some of the spoils of war for sacrifice, for sacrifice. And for padding their pockets. Or with Ananias and Sapphira trying to deceive the apostles in the first church to allow that that seed of deception at this critical juncture, these acts of rebellion from from people who should know better are met with disastrous consequences. Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden. God removes, expels his own spirit from Saul and expels the very lives of Ananias and Sapphira from their bodies on the spot. I mean, that's intense This sudden judgment had rightfully a sobering effect on those around and those who heard about it. Again, following God is dangerous. And this was a reminder of the imminent reality of God's power and how important it was to maintain integrity within the church. But even think about this, what this means for those on the outside. Imagine someone else knew that that wasn't everything. Whoever they, whoever they got the money from. And this would, in a way, maintain the integrity of the church as a whole for those on the outside, knowing that the lying and the deception could not be tolerated among them, that it would be purged. It would, I mean, this would deter anyone else from joining unless they were really fully ready to be committed to it. And... So I, I would say that fear is, is healthy to a certain extent, and yet we see the healthiness of this fear leading to a strong, uncorrupted foundation paving the way for even more growth. So it's not a fear that causes stagnation. 
We keep reading in verse 12, it says, Now at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. (laughs) Just kind of repeating again. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. So it's like everyone was afraid of them, but also they had a really good reputation. And then verse 14, And... You know, none of the rest dared associate with them, but more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number. Multitudes of men and women. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. So when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the multitude from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. They were all being healed. I just love that kind of back and forth of 13 and 14. Nobody dared associate with them, even though they were highly esteemed, and somehow their numbers kept growing in multitudes anyway. We're not going to read all the way to the end of chapter 5, but let's read just the next couple paragraphs here. I just want to read through. They're going to get arrested again, and we're going to kind of see this come full circle once again. Starting in verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and those with him, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and those with him came, they called the Sanhedrin together, even all the council of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the jailhouse for them to be brought. All these big important people waiting for them to come be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. They returned and reported back, saying, We found the jailhouse locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but we opened it and found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, that they might be stoned. Notice they brought them forcibly when they had, you know, they were sneaky about it. Now they can't be sneaky because it's in front of everyone. When they had brought them, they stood them before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. May it be said of us that we fill our communities with the message of Christ. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his his right hand as a leader and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They're calling out their sin, but also saying that he's offering forgiveness. 
And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey him. Sorry, I forgot to go to the next screen there. I love that last verse. And some of this might be starting, if you've been tracking through these four, five chapters, it's kind of like they're having the same conversation over and over again with these leaders. Because the apostles' message at its core has not changed, the leader's goal for them to stop talking has not changed, and it's like an, it's an impossible impasse. These poor guys, though, the, the priest and the Sanhedrin, they just they keep getting more and more annoyed by the apostles, and the apostles just keep getting more and more annoying. They can't even keep them in the public jail anymore. They just somehow are miraculously back preaching in the temple first thing in the morning. I mean, can you imagine how annoying that would be? Come on. How cool would it be, though, as the apostles to have that happen to you? To have such blatant validation in what you're doing that God's angels come and let you out of prison so you can go keep doing what you're doing and continue doing it again at the crack of dawn. And of course, they get dragged back to the Sanhedrin. Nobody knows how they got out of jail. And I think it's kind of ironic. They don't even ask them about that. Like, how did you get out? They, don't, they, don't, they kind of skip right over that, act as if it was all part of their plan all along. And the, well, we told you to stop teaching. And again, their response is essentially, sorry, God said not to stop, and God's bigger than you. So, oh, by the way, you should repent and follow God. <laughs> they don't back down. And how could they after that night and morning that they've just had? I mean, that would be pretty empowering and encouraging. And I think my favorite part, though, of Peter's response here is at the end in verse 32. We are witnesses. We've seen it. But clearly you don't care about that. So is the Holy Spirit. Who God gave to those who obey him. In other words, you don't even have to take our word for it. Ask God. Ask the Holy Spirit who is available to you if you are counted among those who obey him. I don't think the Sanhedrin, at least not many of them, were counted among those in, in that moment that day. So I just to wrap up, and step, I want to step away from this story for a moment and get a little more applicational, I guess, and just ask you all a question as a follow-up to that last statement. It's just for you to ponder yourself. Just ask yourself, do you obey God? Do I obey God? (laughs) What does that even mean? Where? How does one obey God? And what does God require? Micah, I believe, offers a rather poetic summation. Micah 6, 8 says, he has told you Oh man, oh human, what is good? And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love loving kindness? One of those funny words that doesn't have an English equivalent. And to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love loving kindness, trustworthy, loyal love, and to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus, of course, sums up the whole law and the prophets with this, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Putting together two core commandments from the Old Testament. As for the unique daily details of what does it mean to obey God right now, 
I believe I'm, I'm obeying God and sharing from his word right now, and you're obeying God by listening to his word right now, but what about the next moments as we go, you know, step forth from this building? Jesus said we need not waste energy worrying, even, even about our own well-being and provision and where our clothes and food will come from, if we seek God's kingdom first. Well, going back to Matthew. Do not worry then, he says in Matthew 6, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we worry for clothing, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As complex as God is and as complex as our lives are, following God, at least getting started, is relatively simple. Essentially, all you have to do is choose to do so in every moment to decide that your primary focus in life will be following God in every situation and to trust that everything else will fall into place around that. The most valuable gifts we have for navigating that, gifts from God, are His Word and His Spirit and each other united in the same. Through God's Spirit, we have been given His Word through each other. God used His Spirit to speak to us through humans writing it down over thousands of years. And through God's Spirit, we can know and understand and be transformed by God's Word even still to this day. I just wanted to close in this passage from John. We read probably a lot because it's just so good. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we commit today or recommit our hearts to live by the light of your word and your word alone. Father, may we traverse this life for as long as you let us humbly with you. And as we walk with you and talk to you, open our ears and our eyes to what you're teaching us all the time. Help us to know and understand you better to do that by knowing and understanding Scripture and, and Christ and each other better. Help us to love you more deeply every day as we love and learn to love Scripture and Christ and each other more deeply. We humbly ask you for peace, for health, for many, many more hours like this filled with joyful communion with each other, both as individual families in our homes and together as your church, we cherish the seasons of comfort and abundance that you allow us to enjoy, knowing that you are compassionate and generous and knowing that that's true even when we don't feel comfortable or happy, we can all the more lean into your love and strength and find a purer, deeper joy that comes with knowing you and how much you love us and you're with us through everything. As much 
as you want us to enjoy those many good gifts that you've given us, we must never worship those things rather than worshiping you who gave them to us. Sometimes it does just take stripping away other distractions for us to regain our focus on you. But whatever it takes, Lord, I pray you would help each and every one of us to set our gaze on you with every breath we take. And when we lose focus, to have patience and kindness with our own selves, to not go into a tailspin, but simply pick up where we left off, knowing that your open and loving arms will never turn us away when we are truly humbled before you and seek you and your kingdom above all else. Give us, we pray, such clarity. Motivate us and unite us in the rhythms of your grace upon grace upon grace. Let us be basking in and spreading that grace and love as we go forth. In Jesus' name, amen.